you know, we are kind of in the last days of summer, and we are closing up our series on the book of Proverbs, and we have a couple weeks to go before the solstice, and fall truly rolls around. But I think today's subject about friendship, specifically in the book of Proverbs and in the scriptures, is a subject that we need to actually talk about. It's very poorly, I think, understood in our culture today, modern Western culture. But if COVID-19, I think, has shown us anything at this time is that actually we have a great need to have friends. But the tricky part for us is why is it that so many people, when I talk to people about friendship, struggle to have good, meaningful, and deep relationships? Why is it that we struggle so hard with the idea of friendship? You know, one of the best works, I think, on the subject of friendship was written by C.S. Lewis. I think to this day, I think it's still probably one of the best essays that you could read. Go get his book, The Four Loves. And in his book, The Four Loves, he talks about four different kinds of love. He'll deal with affection. He deals with friendship. He talks about eros and also about charity. Now, one of the most fascinating things that he notes in the book, I think he's right, is that of all those loves, friendship is really the least natural one. Let me explain. For example, for those of you who are parents or have raised children, why do you go through the process of dealing with a screaming baby who wakes up every three hours in the first six weeks of their lives wanting to nurse? You're so exhausted and tired. You spend all your time changing poopy diapers, cleaning up vomit as well, running the washing machine every single day. It's exhausting. It's, it's a 24-7 job, and the baby pays you nothing and gives no consideration whatsoever to your feelings. Why do you do it? The reason you do it is because the baby is helpless, it's cute, and it's yours. And so you, you feel this overwhelming urge to say, I'm going to take care of you. Nobody has to teach you how to do that. You feel it in your heart, and that's called affection. I think the same thing goes for those of you who are about to be married right now or are dating and so on, or even if you are married to the idea of romantic love, that is eros, right? You fall in love, you know, you have puppy love, your eyes glaze over, you look at the other person, that's all you can think about. That's neurons, chemicals, hormones moving in your body. Nobody wakes up and says, well, I better psych myself up today to fall in love. No, it, it just happens. Friendship is wholly different from these other kinds of loves because it's not chemical, There's no sort of biological impulse or urge to get it going. Friendship is not biologically driven. There's an intentionality that comes behind friendship. That's what makes it so different. Now, it wasn't just Lewis who noted this, but other civilizations and people of the past also realized how different friendship was. In fact, when you look at the ancient Greeks and others, they really prized friendship. And they even thought that intentional friendships set you apart from the animals, and it's what raised humanity, they said, up to the level of gods and of angels. Aristotle, the great philosopher, said this about friendship. Friends have one soul between them, and friends have all things in common. The other philosopher, Zeno of Elia, said this. He was once asked about how a friend could be described, and he said two words. A friend, he says, is another I. That's how close many people viewed friendships. Now, this is largely lost, I think, on the modern world. Most modern people today, if you've grown up in this Western culture, idealize not friendship, actually, but romance instead. That's what Hollywood makes tons of money off of, romance blockbusters. But in the past, if you look at other cultures, many of these cultures instead prized deep same-sex friendships over romantic love. 
See, the idea actually that your lover or your spouse or the person that you're marrying is also your best friend, you know, would have been foreign to the thinking of many people who entered into marriage for economic, financial, or social reasons instead. For many people, your, your lover was not your best friend. Your best friend was someone else that you chose. Marriage just had to happen because of circumstances outside of your control. So this idea that your spouse is your best friend or your lover is your best friend is a relatively new concept, actually, largely 20th century, I would say. In fact, if you go back in history and you look, for example, at the French philosopher in the 16th century, uh, Michel de Montaigne, this is what he said, actually, about friendship between man and woman. The ordinary capacity of women is inadequate for the communion and fellowship, which is the nurse of this sacred bond. Nor does their soul seem firm enough to endure the strain of so tight and durable a knot. You read stuff like this and you go, wow. Like, can you imagine saying something like that today? Going out and saying, well, I think women are incapable of friendship and it has to therefore be between men. You know, today most of us in, in the world, look at this. Anyways, that's, that's, that's nonsense. Most of us would affirm that men and men can have great friendships, women and women have great friendships, and men and women can have great friendships. There's no inadequacy on either side in a capacity to have a friendship. Of course, when we're talking about men and women, we have to be careful that we don't cross into immorality or certain boundaries and so on, but it's not a lack in any one particular sex. The point is, though, when you look at this, is that deep, same-sex, you know, non-sexual friendships were actually once the norm. But today, I think modern people are so busy, so tired, and so engaged in so many things that they really don't take the time actually to invest in deep, meaningful friendships. But despite the fact that all of us are rather busy in this world, yes, we're all busy, um, the truth is that uh, we all do have friends of some sort, deep or not, that do influence us. And despite what our culture has to say about us, not a single person in this individualistic society is actually self-made. I know we're taught that you can be anything you want to be, and you are your own person, but actually you're not. I think your pride actually needs a bit of a humility check here. Largely, I would say that when you're young, what happens is that you are the product of your family. How your family teaches you and raises you is what shapes you and influences you hugely. But as you get older and you enter into the sphere of humanity and you spend time with other people, actually it's your friends and the people who surround you on a regular basis who really begin to shape you. You know, it was the famous American entrepreneur and also motivational speaker by the name of Jim Rohn who said this. He said, you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. Now, I think he's right, actually. His point is this, is that your friends actually shape you immensely. And if I were to actually look at the entire teaching of the book of Proverbs on the subject of friendship, what God actually has to say about friendship through this book, if you were to ask me to sum it up in a nutshell, in one sentence, I would say it's this. I think Proverbs is teaching you the type of friends that you have will either make or break you in life. That's what Proverbs has to say. And that's what actually I'd like to show you now as we go through our book of Proverbs. Five God-given insights that I'd like us to focus on here regarding the nature of true friendship and what it does actually in your life. All right? Okay, so let's go. Number one, true friends are rare. Proverbs 20, verse 6, you can follow along here on the screen uh, or in your Bibles. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Okay, so many people 
say that they are true friends, but the proverb says here, in reality, actually very, very few are. Now, today, I think this is truer than ever because the majority of relationships that we have in life are what I would say client-consumer relationships. That is, you go down to the grocery store like Costco, for example, and you buy stuff from Costco, not because your uncle works there. Why? But because it's cheap. And the minute that Costco is not cheaper than another place, you find a better, better price on Amazon.ca, forget Costco. You prime that thing to your door instead. See, you take your business to a different place depending on what that person is able to offer you, not based on your relationship with who owns that store. And this actually affects many things, our workplaces and uh, other relationships that we have in life, music teachers and so on. Now, for those of you who are young, you know, the pressure is immense when it comes to social media. Say you have a YouTube channel, for instance, instead, and you're hoping to attract more followers. And people love your content, and they start subscribing to you. Let me tell you, though, as much as you want to have more people being your followers, at the end of the day, those are not friends. Those are consumers. And the minute that they no longer like your content or you simply fail to produce, they will abandon you, and they will leave you, and they will find somebody else to follow at the end of the day. You have to really understand that followers and people that you acquire online are not necessarily your friends. You know, Proverbs 14.20 and 19.4 actually speaks about this phenomenon, about why people come and go based on what you have. Proverbs 14.20 says, The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Okay, what does that mean? Let's Proverbs 18 and the Proverbs 19 verse 4. Second part of this. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. This is very helpful when you put the two Proverbs together because you realize it's not just about how many friends you do have because if you have money, people will show up at your door, but these same people, when the gifts end, will desert you. In other words, people who are there for the gifts and not for the giver really are not the kind of friends that you want. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. Do you understand why having real friends, legit true friends, is actually a rare thing? Many people want what you have, but they don't necessarily want you. How about Proverbs 18.24 that says this, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So in other words, what it's saying here is that a few true, solid friends is way better than having 10,000 Instagram followers. See, true friends are not in a consumer-client-type relationship with you. What makes a friendship, actually, is that it's grounded in a different type of relationship that is a covenant-type relationship. In a covenant relationship, it's not about a product, but it's about a person instead. So it's a relationship in which you say, no, I'm here for you even when you can't produce, when you are sick in the hospital, I'm here for you because I'm here for you. You are what's valuable in this relationship. See, covenant is actually the way that God relates to humanity. You look through the story of the Bible, I would say that the entirety of the story of the Bible is built on numerous covenants that God makes with humanity. It's the covenant-keeping God that we celebrate, not a contractual God. If God was into contracts with us, we'd all be in trouble. See, a covenant is actually God's original design in marriage, and it's something that we celebrate all the time when Christians gather together and are married with one another. See, in a marriage, we say in the traditional vows, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, until death does us part. Right? That's the traditional married vows. 
But I think it's really sad that in our culture today that marriage really has degenerated into a contractual relationship that ends when one party no longer feels happy. Actually, in the words of a modern marriage ceremony, it says uh, that I listened to, it says, as long as love shall last. And you're like, what does that mean? Does that mean the moment you fall out of love, you end your supposed covenant relationship? What kind of foundation is that to actually build anything on? Contracts are the norm of our culture, but the Bible speaks of covenant. And that is what I think true friendship needs to be founded on. No wonder friendship is rare. Number two from the book of Proverbs. True friends love and they strengthen you during your worst trials. Proverbs 17, 17 says this. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Okay. So in other words, true friends are there for you through the thick and through the thin times. In this verse, I think the word brother here is actually synonymous with the word uh, for friend here. It's just the same way that David calls Jonathan his brother. He's not his biological brother, but he says, there's a friend, you're like family to me. So I think it's synonymous. And what the text here is saying is a brother is born for adversity is really God's declaration that the purpose, his handcrafted purpose for solid friends in your life is that God has made them specifically to be there for the situations that are hard and absolutely adverse in your life. Why did God make certain people? Why did God make you? In fact, if you are a true friend to someone else, what this proverb is teaching is that you are handcrafted by God to be there in your good friend's moment of greatest trial, to encourage them and to support them and to love them. You know, as you're a Christian, you know, or if you've been through life, have you ever been in a situation where you just were so depressed that you needed a friend? And how great it was when that friend showed up for you and you thanked God for them. In 1 Samuel 23, we actually read about David who is uh, running for his life in the wilderness. And Saul, day after day, his father-in-law, the evil king, basically, is trying to hunt him down and pin him with a spear. Can you imagine what it was like to be David running every day for your life, not knowing if you'd wake up with a spear at your throat, knowing that you can't even fight back against the Lord's anointed. Can you imagine how exhausting that was for him, how difficult it was? You just have to read the Psalms about when David is running from Saul and you see his heart and the agony he was in. You know, his brother, Jonathan, you know, his, his, this, this, this young man who loved him as well as his own soul, hears about David and he goes to meet him. And 1 Samuel 23, verses 16 to 17 says this, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. You know, I love this. It's absolutely amazing the way that Jonathan encourages David. He doesn't come up to him and say, David... You're a great warrior. You got this. I believe in you. He doesn't say that. Instead, he looks at him and he says, David, text says, he strengthened his hand in God. And actually, that's what a good friend does. A good friend is one who comes alongside you when you're so low there in the dirt and then all you can see are your own toes and all you can feel is your own pain. And your friend says to you, stop looking down. Don't even look at me, but look up. Look up to heaven. Look to the God who has promised. Look to the covenant-keeping God. Look to the God who is your king. And this God who is king and rules over all things said, 
and promise, you will be king. And because you will be king, don't worry. At the end of the day, he will save you. You will not die. See, that's actually what a good friend does. A good friend brings you back to the place where you can hear and listen to the promises of God. Now, I know that in your life, many of you are going through really difficult times. And you might be so discouraged right now that all you can do is actually look down at the ground. And you feel like, when is this pain actually going to stop in my life? Does, does God even hear? I remember being with a sick friend in the hospital once, telling me. And I said, what's it like? Are you praying these days? And he said, I can hear God's word. He says, but Sam, it sounds so distant right now, so quiet, as if he's very far away. It was times like that I realized that, you know, when I visit with people in the hospital and they're discouraged or they're just going through a really rough patch, it's times like that that actually you need the word of God spoken to you from the outside because your heart is so crushed. It's times like that when you're so despondent that your body literally is in a state of almost like an allergic reaction, a state of shock, and you can't bring yourself to do anything. You can barely feel like you can breathe. And in times like that, when a person is going through an allergic reaction, so let's say a bee sting or something, you don't look at them and say, well, why are you gasping for ear? Just go inject yourself with something. No, you don't. At some point or another, if you realize that they are dying and incapable, you will grab that EpiPen and stab it into their thigh to save them. Now, of course, you've got to be careful. You don't get sued with this sort of thing in our strange world. But you get the point, right? At some point or another, you can't save yourself. And the way that God has designed it is for another to come and take a spiritual EpiPen loaded up with truth from the Word of God and say, you can't breathe. Let me inject this into you right now. Let me speak the Word of God. Let me remind you of truth and lift your eyes up towards heaven. That's the value of a great friend, a doctor for your soul who directs you to God. You know, Hebrews 3, 12 to 13 echoes this reality. It's one of my favorite passages. Right, it says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, so long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, what this passage teaches is that sometimes God's way of saving you is to take a fellow believer who will then perform open-heart surgery on you by basically taking the scalpel of the living Word of God and cutting it away at the hard casing of despair and agony and pain that has surrounded your heart and that is blocking you from hearing clearly the Word of God. That's what a good friend does. Sometimes God has arranged for that to happen actually in your life as the means by which you get better. It's an amazing thing to be a friend. You're a surgeon, though you don't have a degree, and you save lives. Number three, true friends speak the truth even when it hurts. Proverbs 27 verses 5 to 6 says this, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You want to know one thing about true friends that you can see from this is that true friends will rebuke you when you're wrong. Why? Because they actually care for you and they are your friends. It's actually way better for those of you who are married and uh, you often get into conflict with your spouse and uh, sometimes it's not pleasant. Let me tell you, it's way better to have God sanctify you and burr off sort of rub off the rough edges of your personality through somebody who loves you 
rather than one day you meeting a boss at work who can't take enough of your nonsense and those rough edges anymore and simply fires you or disciplines you. You see, enemies actually want your doom. And they will kiss you and say all kinds of nice things to you without regard whatsoever for your ultimate well-being. Just because a person kisses you and has never had a cross word with you does not mean they're your friend. In fact, they actually might hate you. True friends will actually tell you what you don't want to hear for your own good. In years ago, when I was asking Esther to uh, date me and then ultimately to marry me, I actually wanted counsel from others. And I went to my pastor and I talked to him and I said, can you give me your honest opinion on her? I know what I think, but I really want to be open to other counsel. And I remember my pastor looking at me and he said, sure, Sam, uh, just one question for you. If this doesn't work out. Uh, how messed up are you going to be? I thought to myself, why are you asking that question? I said, of course. I said, God is in control. I'll be perfectly fine. It's okay. I'll leave this relationship in the hand of God. I soon figured out afterwards why he asked that question. Because when he did sit down with Esther to talk to her, and I thought it was going to be an easy kind of get to know you chat, like how are you, who are you and stuff. He actually didn't do that. He actually brought her in and in his first meeting, he grilled her. It was... I. First meetings like that are just absolutely unheard of. But as I talked to Esther afterwards, I found he went after her and he literally said, why do you want to date Sam? What do you bring to the table? Who are you in the first place? What's going on in your life? Why do you think? And question after question after question. Esther was actually quite taken aback, she told me, by this. And then he stunned her actually further by asking her about something that was in her heart that she had never told anyone else. And she was actually shocked. She said, how did you know? Later, when I heard this story, I went to my pastor and asked him, hey, how did you know about that? How did you surface that? And I remember looking at me, and he just shrugged, and he said, before she came in, I prayed. Now, my first pastor was a man of the word, and he was a man of prayer. And I learned an immense amount from that man, and I have deep love and respect for him to this day. And I think what I, what I, I think about now, you know, looking back on this, how much I actually appreciated him for that. You know, at the moment, at first, I thought, what are you doing? You know, when I heard this story... This is, this is dumb. Hey, we want her to like us here. Like, what are you doing? But in the end, actually, it was the best thing. And my wife now told me afterwards, she said, Sam, your pastor actually loves you very much and proceeded to tell me about the conversation. See, that's what real friends actually do for you. Do you have friends who will tell you unpleasant but true things? Will they speak the truth to you even when it hurts? If not, actually, you probably don't have true friends. As a church leader, the hardest conversations for me are those in which people bring up the mistakes that I know I have made, and they say things to me like, Sam, I'm so sorry that I have to um, say this, but I need to tell you about, I'm like, oh, no, you know, I don't like these conversations, and exposes another stupid decision I have made, and I should repent of it, but to my own shame, I have to say, sometimes I get upset, I argue back, I try to justify myself, But at the end of the day, when they show me what is right and I have to apologize to the Lord and I apologize to them, I actually have an immense amount of respect for those in the church who have come up to me in love to speak to me about my mistakes, my sins, because they love me actually enough to cause me pain. My greatest friends are not those that I've never had a cross word with, but are those actually that have sinned against me, I've sinned against them, and we have known the sweetness of Christian reconciliation. That's the mark of a true friend. You know, Proverbs 17.9 says this, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, 
but he who repeats a matter actually separates close friends. In other words, true friends actually talk to you, they cover for you in love, and they don't go blabbing to everyone else about your faults. Now, after this sermon, I don't want you to think, okay, for some of you I know might be eager, and you're like, ooh, application time, I've got to go and give so-and-so in this church a piece of my mind now to be a good friend and to be honest with them. I'm like, no, okay, hang on first. You need to think about this. The scriptures command us, yes, to speak the truth, but it also commands us to speak the truth in love. So you, before you go get on your high horse and you go up and confront your brother, let me ask you, are you doing it in love? Are you there to serve their good? Or are you there to serve your own good and get something off of your chest? Because if you are, you might actually identify the right thing. You might actually speak the truth, but in the end of the day, even though you're right on and you're spot on, perfect pitch with what you have to say, you might be no more than a musical instrument, a clanging cymbal and a gong. You might play perfectly, but at the end of the day, you're not a friend. You're just a tool. That's the difference between one who speaks truth and truth in love. Truth in love is human, the way that God intended us to be. Truth by itself is simply a tool. It can sometimes be a weapon. Don't be that person. See, the counsel of a true friend might be painful, but at the end of the day, a relationship with a true friend is immensely sweet. Look at what Proverbs 27 verse 9 has to say. It says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. It's sweet, actually, to have a friend who gives you good counsel. Proverbs 15.22 actually talks more about this. Without counsel, it says plans fail. But with many counselors or advisors, they succeed. So if you want to succeed in life, here's the secret. Go and get help from godly friends. You need their counsel. Fourth thing, number four. True friends are actually sensitive to the needs of others. Now, friends actually do need time to spend together. You can't grow a friendship without time. But if you have a BFF or your best friend forever or whatever, this does not mean that you actually have to be attached to the hip and be together with them 24-7. At times, actually, this can do damage to you. Look at what Proverbs 25 verses 16 to 7, 25 verses 16 to 17 has to say about this. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. 17, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of it, you, and hate you. Now, this is a fascinating couplet, and I think that most of you probably never thought about this or read, read this. But here's how the argument works in the scriptures. Honey, we all acknowledge, is sweet and it's delicious. But if you eat too much of it at one sense, you'll probably feel really sick. Similarly, friends actually need time to spend together, but they also actually need time to actually spend apart from one another as well. The fruit of friendship actually grows best when it's not imposing on or ignoring the needs of another and is actually being sensitive and supportive to the needs of another person. When there's an imbalance in that when it comes to a friendship, friendship actually turns into something that is life-sucking rather than is life-giving instead. Now, People will ask that, well, how much time? You know, oftentimes we get into conflict because there's different expectations. How much time should you need in this case? Well, to follow up the analogy, let me just talk once again about honey, the same thing that the scriptures talk about. With regards to honey, I enjoy honey. I enjoy honey on toast. You know, I can eat it, you know, on four pieces of toast. I can take spoons of honey. I really enjoy it, right? I love it with my breakfast. 
But there's a certain point that after a few spoonfuls of honey, I just simply can't take anymore. Probably because I'm getting old and I, you know, I, I, I don't like as sweet things as I used to as a child, you know. But my kids are a completely different story. If I let them be there with that four-liter bucket of honey that we bought from Costco, I guarantee you that. If I turn my back for probably an hour, that bucket will be empty by the end of the day and they will feel perfectly fine. My children have a very different tolerance for honey than I do and sweet things, probably just because they're kids. Here's my point. The word seldom in this text is a relative word. Just as you have to figure out how much honey that you need to eat in order to make sure that you're okay, you also need to figure out with your particular friend just how much time you need together to be able to cultivate a good and healthy friendship. See, a good friendship only works when both of you are able to say, you before me. And when both of you say, you before me, my, your needs before mine, then it works. And you have a friendship that is sacrificial and giving to another. And it's absolutely critical for us, I think, to understand this in our day and age, especially in an age of instant messaging. You know, cell phones actually, I think, have created a way for us to violate this scripture by placing our digital feet into somebody else's home without ever leaving our houses. And I get this all the time when I'm dealing with people in conflicts, right? People get mad. My text message wasn't answered in five minutes. Are they angry with me? 60 minutes go by. I think they've unfriended me. I'm like, no, it's... They could be in the bathroom. They could have gone out. Their phone might be dead. You know, there's so many wrong assumptions that you can make when you're trying to deal with difficult situations over text messaging. For those of you who are into text messaging and trying to solve things over uh, digital sort of communication and Instagram or like with uh, your Telegram accounts, let me just give you advice. Don't do it. Don't try to counsel or try to do difficult things. Go and find your friend face-to-face and actually talk to them. Speak to them about what they've done wrong against you, and if you can convince them with biblical truth and sound reason, you've won your brother over and your sister. You know, communication through phones is excellent for passing information, but it's horrible, actually, I think, for trying to work out conflict when it comes to friendship. And if you're not careful with it, you can actually use your phone to place your foot in your neighbor's house way more often than you actually should. So be very careful, I would say, when it comes to using your phone. Use your phone responsibly so that you don't become a burden on your friends. Number five, true friends know God and they sharpen each other in God. Proverbs 27, 17 is famous. It says this, right? As iron sharpens iron, so uh, one man sharpens uh, another. In other words, basically we get dull by ourselves and the way that God has designed us is to be actually sharpened by other human beings. That's how we get sharp. You know, the reason that I added the word in God to this fifth point here is not because I like changing the scriptures, but because I think it's important to understand that in the book of Proverbs, anytime Proverbs talks about wisdom, it's, it's assuming that it's talking about God-given wisdom or godly wisdom. So I think it's fair actually to say that. Like Proverbs 7 verse 4 says this, Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. So the book of Proverbs assumes that whenever you're dealing with wisdom and you're sharpening another friend with biblical wisdom, you're doing so alongside Lady Wisdom, who is your intimate and your close friend, the wisdom of God. And so you're never doing it alone. See, your friends actually really do matter who they are, and what kind of wisdom they have because your friends do influence you even now. 
And Proverbs says it's important to have the right influences, godly influences in your life. And Proverbs gives all kinds of warnings, actually, about what happens when you have ungodly influences or the wrong influences in your life. So, for example, if you look at Proverbs 22, verses 24 to 25, it actually warns about angry friends. It says, make no friendship with a man who's given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. In other words, it's going to hurt you in the end of the day. You'll hurt yourself. Or Proverbs 25, 19 says this about treacherous friends. Trusting in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. So in other words, to follow the analogy, what it's saying is like, while you're mountain climbing through the difficulties of life, and you put your foot on someone who is a treacherous friend, instead of finding a secure perch to get to the next peak and to overcome your trials, that foothold will give way and you will fall to your own doom. That's what bad friends will actually do to you. They will kill you. Proverbs 23, verses 6 to 8, talks about the manipulative type of friend. It says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, Don't desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. In other words, you know this kind of friend, what this is? This is the kind of friend that says, here, I did something for you, and here you go. And then you know at the end of the day, they only gave that to you because they actually want something from you. And when you find out sometimes what they want afterwards, you'll regret that you actually ever took anything from them. That's not a friend. And the Proverbs warns about these kind of friends. It goes on. There's lazy friends, there's gossipy friends, and all sorts of others. But the point is this. You need friends. They do influence you. But you don't need the bad kind of friends. What you need are good friends. You need godly friends, those that speak the wisdom of God in your life. See, do you know what makes friendship actually different from romantic love? See, it's this. Lovers actually lie in each other's arms and they look with each other into each other's eyes. Their gazes are fixed on each other. Friends are different. Friends don't lie in each other's arms. Friends actually stand side by side and they don't look at each other, but they look ahead and they look forward at something else, something else bigger than themselves, a particular passion or a common interest that is mutual to their friendship. And whether that is, I don't know, for you, playing Candy Crush on your phone and you have a gang of friends that you enjoy that with, if it's something as silly as that, or you have a gang of friends actually that is with you because of your passionate pursuit towards God and wanting to live out for God, whatever it may be, friendship is always centered on something common outside of your friendship. That's why so many people who desperately crave friends and think, oh, if only I just had a friend, I really, really want friends, oftentimes will never actually get friends. And the reason why is having a friend is not the end goal of friendship. When you make a friend the end goal of a friendship and not a common, passionate interest and stuff, you actually don't want a friend. What you want is a servant, somebody to satisfy your desires. And what you do is you dehumanize a person and you turn them into a tool. And that's the why the reason when many people think my only problem is I don't have friends and if I only had a friend I would be fixed, you actually don't know yourself. You don't know what the real problem actually is. You need something actually beyond yourself, beyond a friend to live for. And until you find that, you will always turn friends into tools. See, when you find someone that shares the same passion that you do, that nobody else understands, actually it's absolutely amazing. 
I mean, you basically look at them and you shout and you go, you see what I see? I mean, you, you see the same truth that I see? I, I thought I was the only one. Where have you been all my life? That, that's what happens when you actually find and you discover a good friend who shares your passion. That's actually what happened to David and Jonathan. When you read 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse, chapter 18, verse 1 says this, when John, uh, As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, in context, you know what? when this account happens? It happens right after David kills the Philistine giant Goliath. And Jonathan, after looking at David's zeal for the glory of God and how he would not stand for insults to his God, it says Jonathan's heart just clung to him and he loved him. Not because David was ruddy and handsome. That's what the Bible tells us. He was good looking. But because David was a man after God's own heart and Jonathan saw that in his heart and says, I love you because you love God. You're my other half. See, it's so sad, I think, that our world thinks that deep same-sex friendships are either weird, unnecessary, or probably sexual. You know, God's Word actually teaches the opposite. It's absolutely normal. In fact, it's not just normal, it's necessary. And if you have a friend problem, it's actually most likely that you have a God problem first. You know, for those of you I was thinking about in the church who are singles, and I know uh, you're probably looking for somebody to marry, and, uh, and, and not just maybe a best friend. Friends are great, but maybe, maybe you do just feel like God has given you a desire to be married, and that's a great thing. For those of you who are that way, let, let me just give you some wisdom um, about what to do that was given to me early on. If you're looking for somebody to marry and you're not sure where to look, I would say run. Start running. Run hard after God. You passionately pursue God and after a certain period of time, you look to the side and you see who is running with you. And then you fix your eyes forward again on God and you keep running forward. And after some more time has passed, you look to your side afterwards and you see who is still running with you. And if you find some of those people, a person of the opposite sex who is still running, and you find yourself attracted to them and their godliness, you say, God, is this a person that you have laid out for me to be married to? And if so, thank you for your gift. And then, discern, wrestle, and figure out whether this is a person to marry. You know, when young people, you know, wrestle with these things, you know, and figure out, you know, what should I do? Who should I look for right now? It's so important, I would say, to pursue Jesus. And when you pursue Jesus and you're running the race of the life alongside others, you will quickly discover that the crowd will thin out very quickly because you will never find godly people sitting around on the sidelines. They're always running. They are running the race for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And you will only find them actually out on the race and not sitting in the stand. So if you want to find someone to marry and you say, I want a godly spouse, get in the race, start running and look to your side. You know, good friends really do matter. And they're one of the greatest blessings that you can ever have in your life. You know, speaking personally, one of my dearest friends is a guy named James, actually, who I've known for over a dozen years. He's a pastor today, and he shares a same passion that I have in my heart, this unceasing anguish for a unity of the churches of Vancouver and seeing the Bible taught in every pulpit of this city keeps me up at night, and it keeps him up as well. In our early days, James actually was younger, and he watched, and he learned from how I lived, how I loved my discipleship group, how I taught my Bible study, and so on. But actually, that quickly changed changed and we were doing things together. 
We ended up leading like 7 a.m. prayer meetings together. We went out in the street sharing the gospel with people. We had this ministry house that we ran, had like dozens of guys over on a day. We'd feed them, do their homework, disciple them in Jesus, share the gospel with non-Christians. We actually led the guys through a 90-day challenge to memorize the book of James with them, all sorts of things. We had fun too. James and I studied actually parkour together. And I remember learning how, uh, as we practiced, to jump from a second-story window and to land on concrete and roll so that we would not die, you know. Uh, I remember him also, he was a black belt in karate, uh, teaching me how terrible my kung fu was as he beat me in numerous sparring matches and taught me a great lesson in humility. I owe him a lot, actually, for that. Great lesson. But the thing I value so much more, actually, about James now is, uh, when I think back about it, is that he really taught me, actually, how to study the Bible, Now, I loved memorizing the scriptures as a young man and teaching other people the Bible, but James had an uncanny knack for being able to go deep, to read, and to study the text, and to dig everything he could out through a process of exegesis to see what God's Word was really teaching and then to apply it well to people's lives. And I just was not good at that. James worked with me. He sat with me. He worked on my sermons with me. He pushed me when I didn't get what I thought out of the Bible was was the right thing. Spent hours, actually, as my friend. In fact, today I would say I would not be the teacher or the preacher that I am today. I would not have the knowledge of the scriptures that I have today if it were not for my dear friend James. I literally owe him my spiritual life in one sense. And I know the feeling is really mutual. You know, I would say that, yes, I went to the seminary as well. And the seminary was a great place. It was like a training ground, you know. But seminary is not the place, actually, where I was trained, I think, ultimately for the work of ministry. It was living day in and day out with the people of God communing with God, seeing God's word in action in people's lives, fighting alongside my brother James and many others that actually I think led to me having sharpened spiritual reflexes. You know, seminary, I would say, was a great teacher, but the school of real war is actually a better professor. So don't worry about that. You want to serve Jesus and grow in him? Get out there and do something for him. Live according to what you know from God's word and get a friend who will spur you on as well to do the same thing and grow you and sharpen you as you both passionately pursue Jesus. You see, civilian life and the calm of it and the warmness of it is not conducive, actually, to forging warriors for Jesus. You need the heat of battle, actually, to turn the iron into something that, and give it that razor-sharp edge. I am not self-made. I would say, by the grace of God, I am what I am today. And God has sharpened me through precious brothers and sisters like James and many others, and like people like you, church, family, who have been there for me in my most difficult times and supported me and made sure that my family and I could continue in this race when we were too weary to walk. You know, all this to say, friends, as I wrap this up, is that friends absolutely do matter. And who you choose your friends to be will determine how you will be, actually, in the next few years and for the rest of your life. And that's why I would urge you, actually, to make it a priority to have solid friends here in the church. You know, when you're in a church, I would just say, and you're hunting around, don't, don't just look at a church and say, okay, like, you know, I like the music. You know, Sasha was like a 7 out of 10. You know, uh, pre-COVID lunches with Natasha, Irene, and, and uh, Amasha cooking, that's like a 9 out of 10. That preacher guy, Sam, his voice is annoying. He's about a 5 out of 10. I, I think I can make this work. Yeah, okay, preaching is important. Worship is important. All these things are important. But, that, but, but let me ask, when you go to a church, I, I want you to say, look at the people. Look at the people and ask yourself and say, do I see people here who have made the wisdom of God their intimate friend 
And does what they believe impact the way that they live? And can I see myself actually being alongside these people, sharpening them and they sharpening me for my own good so that at the end of the day, we will be passionately pursuing Jesus Christ together. If you can find that in a church and you know people like that, stop church shopping. Find that place, settle down and say, you're my friends for life. And we're on this road together as we pursue Jesus. Don't just look at all the externals. Look deep into the heart of a church. Look for the people that God has put there and say, are you here for me? And am I here for you? Let's follow Jesus together. Now, perhaps like you've been listening to this sermon and you're thinking, okay, Sam, there's like these five things that you mentioned here. But when I look at this, all I feel is condemnation. I'm an awful friend. I actually don't measure up to all these five things, any of them. What should I do? Now, I remember just listening to one of our church ladies who's a great mom telling me about how she received a note from another person who said, commented about how great and patient and kind she was as mother. And she was lamenting just how untrue that was, how far short she fell of that standard and how, how she wished that was true. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, what? What are you talking about? You are patient and you are kind. There's nothing wrong with you. And I thought, and I thought, wait a minute. People think you, Sam, are patient and kind. And oh my goodness, like they, they, they haven't seen you on your worst days. They, they don't know you when you sin and then you have to go and apologize to it afterwards. You don't, they don't see it sometimes when, when you lose your temper or whatever and then you have to repent afterwards. They, sometimes they think you're perfect, but you know you're really not. And I was like so sobered by that. Oh, and I'm like, God, I just know the times I fail. I am not a perfect friend. I will never be a perfect friend. Do you know what a true friend and a perfect friend is? It's this. I, think, I love the way Tim Keller describes it. He says, a, friend, a perfect friend is this. A friend always lets you in and he never lets you down. And the truth is, none of us can actually be that. We can't. We will always fail. But for us as Christians, we don't ever need to despair when we do fail as a friend. Why? Because we actually have a true friend who is there to pick us up and will always be there for those whom we fail to pick them up as long as we point them to him. You know, you just think about it, right? True friends are so rare. And yet Jesus actually may be the only friend that you have, but he's willing to be the friend of anyone who asks. And he is way better than having 10,000 followers on Instagram. Jesus actually will never let you down, even though you might fail as a friend. He says he will never leave you or he will never forsake you either. Actually, Jesus loves you so much, more than any of your friends do, and he's so willing all the time to be honest and to bring pain into your life and to discipline you just so that your soul actually might be saved. You might get mad at him, but he forgives you 70 times, seven times, and every time you go to him in repentance, he will never throw you out. See, Jesus said, right, greater love has anyone than no one has than this. Then you give up your life for your friend, and Jesus went to the cross to take all of your sin and to die on your behalf. Jesus was a friend of God, and yet he traded his status of friend and took the status of criminal so that we could have the status of friend of God before his father and ultimately be saved. You know, in the Old Testament, it was an honor to be called a servant of the Lord. And there was a handful of people, even less, like David, Abraham, and Moses, who were called a friend of God. But here in the New Testament, what we discover is this. Jesus speaking in John chapter 15 says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, this is a fascinating passage. Do you know why? Because do you know what the difference is between being a servant and a friend? What is so profound about the statement that Jesus makes on the last night before he's betrayed and about to go to the cross for his friends? And I think the answer to that is found in that second half of that phrase when he says, for all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. 
See, do you know what a servant is? If I had a servant, not rich enough to have a servant, but if I had a servant and I said to them, meet me downtown at 12 p.m. and bring the car, a servant doesn't need to know why. They just do. If I told you tomorrow, meet me downtown at 12 p.m. and bring the car, you probably would ask me, why? And if you were my friend and not my servant, I would probably tell you why. And after hearing my reasons for why and saying, like, I'm going to treat you to lunch and we're going to have a great time, I planned this for us, you'll say, absolutely, because I'm there for you and you're my friend and I'm your friend. So to be a friend of God, you see, means we not only know his requirements or his law, but we actually know his reason and his heart behind it as well. And that's actually what it means, I think, to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that we know every single thing about every circumstance that's happening in life, that things are going on in life, but we do know this, that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We know that God, no matter how difficult our times are, will never leave us to go hungry. He will never abandon us. In all the things that happen in our life, we know his overarching purposes, and we know that he cares for us because while we were sinners, Christ still died for us. And we have the joy of being not just servants, but friends of God, his ambassadors to take his gospel, to partner with Jesus Christ in saving a world from sin, death, and hell, and going into eternal life. That is the incredible privilege of being a friend of God. We not only get to participate, but we know his heart as well. That's immense. You know, friends, we can never compare with this kind of perfect friend that Jesus Christ is. But as long as we are connected to the source, Jesus, who is the vine and we are the branches, we'll never run dry. You can give and you can give and you can give and never grow empty because you're connected to the infinite source himself. That's how you can be that kind of friend. You may never be it perfectly, but you can always point people to Jesus Christ. And that's what a Christian is. A Christian is one whose heart is so knit together with Jesus that if Jesus were taken from you, it would feel like the sun had dropped out of the world. Would you feel that way if Jesus was taken from you? Would you feel like the sun was gone from your life? Friends, I'm not a great friend, but by God's grace, I'm growing into a better and better friend each day. And when I fail, I do have a great friend who will fight for me and fight for my friends. My question for you as we close today is what kind of friend are you, brothers and sisters? Are you a good, true, and biblical friend? Do you cultivate actually godly friendships in your life? And are you sharpening other people to grow towards God and passionately pursuing Him together? Or is your life full of people actually who are influencing you towards evil and will ultimately destroy your soul at the end of the day? If you don't know Jesus here, let me just tell you, at the end of the day, you will have to choose, and your choice matters eternally. Would you not give yourself over to Jesus who offers Himself to be your friend and a friend of God forever and eternity at his side. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much, God, for the gift of friendship and that Jesus Christ, oh God, is that perfect friend that we could never be. Father, thank you that when we as friends fail, we have one who stands in our defense to cover over our sins. And that when we actually are good friends, we have one who reminds us not to be too prideful and that all good things that flow through us to our other friends come from him. Father, thank you, God, for saving us from both the pits of despair when it comes to friendship and also the heights of pride, oh God, that would kill us. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ, oh God, and I thank you for friends, oh God, in this church. Father, I pray, oh God, that our church would be known as a church that has deep friendships, deep love, and deep fellowship with each other for the sake of your name. So help us, God, to be passionate in our pursuit about Jesus. We praise you, God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.